Today's message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. Pastor Jason Swanson is our senior pastor here at RBC, and this message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning service times. Pastor Jason is currently in a series he's calling a walk through the book of Acts, Jesus at Work. This is part 45 in our walk through the book of Acts, and today Jason is looking at six things that make us a worthy soldier in our spiritual battles. Let's join Jason now as he looks at Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. Here's Jason. Well, amen and amen. What a joy and privilege to gather together in the Lord's house and and praise Him together, huh? I am Pastor Jason, the senior pastor here, and, and welcome again to Rancho Baptist Church. We are so thankful that you have chosen to come and to worship the Lord together with us. And we are working our way through the book of Acts. And I've entitled this, this message this morning, taken from the book of Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 12, a spiritual battle. And if you could turn with me to Ephesians, we'll go to a very common passage, perhaps you've memorized. We'll start our time off there this morning. It says, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, to remind us of the battle that is all around us. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. I know that passage is is very well known. Yet I believe sometimes in the midst of all that we're involved in, we lose sight of the fact that we are in a spiritual battle. And that battle is waged all around us, but we are just not cognizant of it. We can read about it. We'll even read about it this morning, but at times there's a disconnect. And we don't recognize that there is a spiritual battle going on over the souls of men. And I don't know how many of you have been to Mexico before, perhaps on a missions trip. But I remember my first missions trip to Mexico when I was in high school. We were doing vacation Bible school basically for a week long time. And and we decided that in the middle of that week, we would do some sort of evangelistic outreach. And we went around asking all these different families to come and to gather with us at this basketball court where we were doing vacation Bible school in the mornings. And we put out all these chairs and we, and we set up this large screen that was probably 15 feet and we, and we got a projector and, and we got everything going and, and I don't think it, the movie had been going on for even a minute yet. And this great big gust of wind came out of nowhere. We, we hadn't had any wind all week long. And this wind came and just knocked down the screen, totally disrupted everything. So then we spent all this time getting the screen back up and and running. And shortly after that, some 
some drunk guys came by and they created so much havoc and, and chaos that we had to stop the video again. And we had to dissuade them lovingly to just keep moving on. And yet, you know, that wasn't the, the end of it. Satan kept coming back in opposition as at some point, all of a sudden, we could hear this loud, obnoxious noise and it was a 16-wheel truck cruising right next to our our basketball court. Totally disrupting everything. And you may say, oh, well, that's just coincidence, Pastor Jason. I don't believe that's coincidence. That That is Satan. That is a spiritual battle. And as we served the Lord in Papua New Guinea for... For nearly 20 years, we saw the spiritual battle going on time and time again. And that's what we're going to see this morning in in Acts chapter 13. So turn with me to, to Acts chapter 13. As we will see, not only ascending church, the first sending church, not only the, the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, but, but we're going to see six keys to being a, a useful soldier in the Lord's army. Six characteristics of, of the men represented as well as Barnabas and Saul that, that we should take note of. Because whether you recognize it or not, if you have placed your confidence in Christ, you are now an enlisted soldier. And you are part of the battle that is going on. And you have a job that the Lord has given you. And that is to represent Him and to represent Him well. And to be a useful soldier. And what we will see this morning are six keys to being a useful soldier. To be used by Him, through Him, and for His wonderful glory. So let's look at verses 1-12 to this morning. Follow along as I read out loud. The wonderful Word of God. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Cilicia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for so is his name, is, so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed 
when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, that is our heart's desire that as the proconsul watched, not being amazed at the miracle, but being amazed at Your Word, the Word of the Lord, we pray that that is the case this morning. That as we continue to worship You, that we would be amazed at the truths gleaned in Your Scripture. That we would be amazed at the teaching of Your Word. For we know that Your Word is more powerful than a double-edged sword. And so we ask that You go before us now as we open it. And as we dig into it, Lord, go before us and allow Your Holy Spirit to be our teacher and our guide. For it's in the matchless name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. So we see clearly here in in Acts 13 that, that there is a spiritual battle going on. A spiritual battle over the souls of, of men. And is that not the case? It does not matter where you go. You can go to Papua New Guinea. You can go to Mexico. You can go to Marietta. You can, you can go anywhere around us here. And when the gospel is preached, there is going to be a spiritual battle over the souls of men. And in this case, we are given a front side seat to what the Lord has in this battle and who will be victorious in this battle. And what we see is that a prepared soldier, a useful servant for the Lord, first needs to be serving in ministry. For that is what is depicted for us here in the first two verses. So look at Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 2. As we will see, not only an important characteristic of this church, which will be that it is ascending church, but we will see that these men, they were serving in ministry. And that is what you and I should be involved in. We should be serving the Lord in ministry just as they were Look at verses 1 and 2. Now they were at Ant- there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the first thing that we see is an introduction, a characterization of this church in in Antioch, where it was located. We see that it is depicting for us a local church, much like us, gathered together in a certain location, and that location is Antioch. And what we will see, what we have already seen leading up to this point, is that from this point on, this church in Antioch becomes the central point, the launch pad, so to speak, for all the further missionary effort that the Lord Jesus is going to do in order to establish His church to the outermost parts of the earth. He is going to use this church as ascending church. 
But he also gives us a description of the leadership of this church. And notice that the leadership of this church is, is full of these five men. It is not characterized as, as having one man as the sole leader. That the one pastor is in charge. Even though we, we know that Barnabas and Saul have been involved in the church in, in Antioch for quite a while up to this point. That Barnabas had gone there being sent from the church in Jerusalem to check on them. And then as he went and encouraged them in the Lord, he recognizes that he needs some help. And so he goes and he gets Saul and brings him back with him. And together they teach the church. But we see that it was not just the two of them. As we are told that there are three other men that are involved in the leadership of the church. What are they doing? They're serving as elders in a plurality of leadership. And yet all we're told about these men is their names. And for some of them, that's all that will ever be told. For Barnabas and Saul, we know a lot about them and we'll continue to learn more about them. But these other men, all we're told is their name. But that is enough. That is enough to to reveal to us that they had some diversity in who they were, where they came from, because they do not all come from the same spot. Some come from Cyrene, Cyprus, Galilee, Tarsus, and, and even Jerusalem. And so they come together as a, as a group of men to lead Christ's church here in Antioch. And we see that they're given some giftments, that they're gifted in the area of teaching and, and prophecy. And no doubt, we know that they were involved in those ministries. Because what does it say? It doesn't say only that this church was functioning in Antioch with a group of leaders, it says that these leaders were ministering to the Lord. This word ministering is the idea of discharging a public office. That they were being faithful to minister to the church there, but it actually points back and can be translated as worshiping. Pointing back to the Old Testament, to the Levites serving in the temple. That now these men are serving in the Lord's church in Antioch. No doubt teaching and bringing forth new revelation that the Lord was bringing them through the gift of prophecy. But we see it doesn't stop there as it also says that they are fasting. And generally when we see fasting, as we'll see in in the next verse, fasting is associated with praying. Fasting doesn't stand on its own by itself. Fasting is always done in, in some sort of light to bring us to the Lord. And in here, what, what it's coupled with is, is the ministry that they were doing, the serving of the Lord. And perhaps, even though it doesn't tell us why they were fasting, perhaps the reason they were fasting is because they were seeking the Lord as to what they should do in the future. That they knew that the Lord wanted to use them to reach the world for Christ, but perhaps they didn't know who the Lord wanted to use, who they should send, how they should do this. And then notice, too, when the Holy Spirit speaks. He he speaks while they were ministering. And and that's important. And even the terminology that is used for how the Holy Spirit speaks, that the Holy Spirit said, that is the normal word for speaking, as in a voice. And so it's it's either interpreted two ways. Either the Holy Spirit is speaking to their hearts, 
and that they then recognize that the Holy Spirit has told them this, or perhaps, which I think is much more likely, that He spoke through one of them who had the gift of prophecy. New revelation letting them know that this is what they were supposed to do. But think about who the Holy Spirit is telling them to send on this mission. This doesn't make a whole lot of sense. There's five men serving in leadership and the Holy Spirit says, okay, and the two guys I want you to send are Barnabas and Saul. The two guys that have been with you from the beginning. The two guys that are so useful. The two guys that the Lord is already using. I wonder at this point what would have been the response of these men. And yet we see what their response is. They entirely trust the Lord. And yet notice as the Holy Spirit speaks to them and He tells them to set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, that that, that has the idea of of taking one man from a group and setting him apart for an appointed task. And that's what He is doing with Barnabas and Saul. But for all that He says, He doesn't tell them what that work is. He doesn't tell them even where they're going to go. But He tells them that this is a work that He, that I, God, have called them to. And in the Greek, that actually points back to to something that happened in the past. That they had already been called to this work. But it isn't just that these men are serving. And that that has prepared them to be the soldiers that the Lord has for them. But look at verse 3 too. We, we see along with them serving the Lord, they are seeking the Lord. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Of all the ways that they could have responded, this seems quite strange to me. They already knew that the Holy Spirit had told them exactly what to do. And yet, what do they do? Immediately after the Holy Spirit tells them what to do to to set these two men apart and then to send them, we see that they fasted and they prayed. Why? Because they wanted to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. They wanted to seek the Lord even on how they were going to do this. How were they going to send them out? I wonder if they were seeking the Lord. Okay, how much money do we give them? And so what do they do? They fast and they pray. And again, we see that that fasting is always in association with something else. And in this case, instead of service, it's associated with praying. And so they are seeking the Lord and His direction. And yet, as we see this, it's, it's quite strange that they say that they send them away. Is it the Holy Spirit or is it them sending them away? And who is involved in the fasting and the praying? All it says is they. Does the they refer to the entire church or does it refer only to the five? And generally, when when you look at something like this, you go back to what they call the antecedent. You go back to who it was, the group that was mentioned earlier, and we know it was these five men. So most likely, who is doing the fasting and the praying and the laying on of the hands is the five men that are really the three men. And and yet, we, we must understand too that this is something that they do as a unified body. 
And although the whole church can't come up and lay hands upon them, the, the church leaders come up and lay hands upon them, and then I'm certain that the whole church was unified in sending them away. And we know that the whole church was involved because when we come to Acts 14, as we will in several weeks, and they come back from this missionary journey, instead of coming and reporting only to the elders and to the leaders of the church, they come and they report to the entire body all that the Lord did. And so we see that this is a representation of really what we've seen for the first time now is ascending church. We've seen guys go out. We've seen actually some some missionaries forced out of Jerusalem, right? Back earlier in Acts, after Stephen's death in Acts chapter 8, they do go out and they do proclaim, but but that's in a whole different situation and scenario than this. They, They didn't meet as a body and then sent them out as an intentional design and purpose of the church. But here, this is what they're doing. And it's under the prodding of the Holy Spirit, yet we see them gathering together in an organized effort and in a unified front. And and this is what the Lord has in store for all of His churches. It's His design that we are to be ascending church, that we are to be sending folks out to preach the gospel. And yet in this, recognize too what these men were already doing. They were already serving. They were already ministering for the Lord as unto the Lord when when the Holy Spirit sends them out and when this church body sends them out. God often chooses to give more ministry opportunities to those who are already serving Him. Which should cause us all to pause and ask ourselves, well, are we involved in serving the Lord here in the local church? Are we involved in ministry? And perhaps this is one of the reasons why you are here this morning. To be reminded that the Lord wants to use you in His service here, in His body. And so we, we see clearly that, that yes, a, a, a soldier of the Lord, a, a useful servant, he, he needs to be serving the Lord. He needs to be seeking the Lord. And he also needs to be led by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Cilicia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So wait a minute, Pastor Jason. I thought that the church sent them out and now it's saying here that the Holy Spirit's sending them out. So is it the Holy Spirit or is it the church? And I would say it's it's not either or. It's it's both and. And and what is being emphasized here is that ultimately it is the Holy Spirit who is sending them. This was not the church's idea. This was the Holy Spirit's idea. This was the work of the Lord. And so what we see then is that the Holy Spirit then sends them out. And that means to cause someone to go away for a particular purpose. 
And what's so interesting is that the verse 3, where it talks about the church sending them out, that, that's a different word. And what's behind that word is the idea of letting go of certain responsibilities and letting someone be sent out. And so, indeed, what the church does is the church recognizes, man, these are two guys involved in ministry of the church. And this isn't easy for us, but we're going to let those responsibilities go. And we're going to, with our blessing, and our unified front, we're going to send them as an extension of our body. Recognizing that it is not easy, but this is the Lord. And so that is what happens in this case. And yet, why Cyprus? Why do they go to Cyprus? Is it because that, that is what the Holy Spirit told them to do? No, we, we don't see that communicated in, in the first three verses at all. All the Holy Spirit says is set them apart for the work to which I've called them to do. He, he doesn't give them the particulars, the specifics. Do they have a vision? And that's why they go to Cyprus. No, we're not told that as well. I believe what the Lord is is letting us know is that yes, they are sent out by the Holy Spirit. Yes, they're being led by the Holy Spirit. But to a certain extent, why do they go to Cyprus? Because it makes sense. Because it is a wise plan for them. And I believe we see that in, in two different ways. One, we see that in the geographical location of Cyprus. Cyprus was was only 60 miles off the coast. And it was 16 miles from Cilicia, from Antioch. So they had to take like a two-day trip to get from Antioch to Cilicia. And then from Cilicia to get to Cyprus was was a 60-mile boat ride. And so basically there, there is a mission field on their backyard. And they recognize that this mission field is is ripe. Why? Because it's full of Gentiles who need to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I believe it's a good plan and I believe it's a wise plan also because Barnabas is from Cyprus. This is his home. And so no doubt Barnabas has a heart and a desire to go to his home. And to tell them about Jesus. But, but we see even the Lord's goodness in that. Why? Because He would know the culture. He would know the language. He would already have contacts there in order for them to stay with someone. And so as a result, a lot of the work that normally missionaries would do, they didn't have to do. They didn't have to learn the language. They didn't have to learn the culture first. All they had to do was get there. And perhaps that, that, that's a challenge to some of you this morning. Perhaps the Lord has already prepared you to reach a certain group because of where you come from. And because you already have an understanding of their language, of their culture, and the Lord wants to raise you up and send you back. And so we see that, that they end up going to, to this island called Cyprus. And we see that they are involved in ministry. They're serving. They're seeking the Lord. They're being led by the Holy Spirit. And they're also committed to the task. Look at, look at verses 5 to 7. As this job, this missionary endeavor that they're doing is not easy. 
When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now, why would I say that they were committed to the task? I would say they were committed to the task because of this. That the island of Cyprus is 140 miles long. It's 60 miles wide. So even if they hiked every day nonstop, and they did 10 miles a day, which is what most people believe they did during this time, it, it, it would have taken them some 14 days to get from one side of the island to the other side of the island. And even though we're only told about two cities, is that because they only ministered in two cities? Did they come and land at, at Salamis and then, and then they, and then they go to Paphos and all they did was, was preach in those two cities? And the time in between, they, they basically took off their missionary hats and they just cruised from, from one small little town to the next. Well, the Word of God lets us know that this, this phrase that is translated had gone through, that that is a, a, a verb that Luke likes to use. And generally, most of the time when he uses that verb, he's speaking of someone going throughout a region and preaching the gospel. So it isn't that they just stopped preaching the gospel. It's that they kept preaching the gospel everywhere they went. From one side of the island completely to the other side of the island. Sharing the gospel every step of the way, wherever they would spend the night and stop in this 140 mile journey that they were on. And, and two, what made this even more difficult is that there's big mountains in this area too. Two of them. That, they, that they'd have to somehow work themselves around. So this was no easy task. But we see that, that what they were is... They were committed to the task, being committed to the task. And we see then that the Lord brings two men to them as they arrive in Paphos. We're not told anything about what happens in Salamis, right? We, we know first that, that Paul goes to the Jews, he goes to the synagogues, and, and that becomes his pattern. No doubt because that, that is who he knows. And because he always had an open door to come into a synagogue because he could always go in there, especially as a Pharisee, and teach. And so that's what he does. But then he also goes to the Gentiles. But we're not told anything that happens. What kind of result happens in all of this until they get to Paphos, which is the main city on the island. This is where everything happens on the island. And who do they meet there? They meet two people who are entirely different. The first one that, that we're introduced to is a man named Bar-Jesus. And we're told three things about this man. We're told first that he's a magician. And, and, and when it tells us that he is a magician, don't think Las Vegas and illusions. D- don't think some man that, that has cards and, and oh, Pick any card and I'll... No, that, that's not what, what this is talking about. This is not even talking about an astrologer who uses a telescope and, 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 and likes to spend time looking at the stars. No, you need to think of somebody involved in the occult. 
that uses that as a way of deceiving people and using power from Satan to deceive people. That's who this man was. But he's not only that, we see that he's Jewish and that he's a false prophet. Those two words should never come in the same sentence. And they should never be right next to each other. Why? Because according to Deuteronomy 18, if a prophet of the Lord, a Jewish prophet, ever said anything that was not spot on, 100% accurate, he would die. And yet this man is known as a false prophet. Someone who said that he was proclaiming the word of God, but he was not proclaiming the word of God. Even in his name, we see some emphasis and some characteristics of just how terrible this man was. His name is Bar-Jesus. Bar in Aramaic means the son of. So in his name itself, he's proclaiming who he is. Hey, I am the son of Jesus. I'm the son of Joseph. I am the son of salvation. Listen to me and you will learn what salvation is. No, you won't. You will be led astray. And that is exactly what he's doing. And on top of all of that, we see that Satan has has placed him in this position of, of prominence and influence. Why? Because he is friends with the Sergius Paulus man. And instead of depicting him as evil and a false prophet, he's depicted as a man who's intelligent. Isn't that interesting? Why? Because these are two entirely different men. And one is open to the gospel and one is completely opposed. Not only that, but, but this man, Sergius Paulus, he's, he's told to be a proconsul. What does that mean? That means he's the governor of the entire island. He is the most important man on the island. And I believe that, that at least if I was Paul and I was Barnabas and I heard word that, that this man had, had actually summoned me to his presence, I would have been actually a little scared. Why? Because this man has the power to kill them. And I believe that adds more to this aspect that they were committed to the task no matter what. No matter how difficult it was. They can't just jump on a motorcycle and go from one side of the island to the other. That took work. And now they're faced with with this man. And, And yet, look at God's grace to them in this. Because what does this man say? He summons them and he and he wants Saul and Paul and Barnabas. Why? He sought to hear the word of God. That word sought is not just that that he kind of wanted to talk to him. Hey, this might be cool. Hey, I've heard something about this. No, it's the word that means to eagerly seek, to desire, to wish for something. This was something that he was interested in. He wanted to know not about their particular past and and, and maybe the, the wonderful testimony of Saul. No, he wants to know the word of God. This was a man who had a hungry heart. He had a searching soul for the Lord and the Lord had prepared his heart as if it were soil. And so we see that they're serving in ministry. They're seeking the Lord. They're being led by the Holy Spirit. They're committed to the task. And and we also see in verse 8 that when opposition comes, they are willing to defend the faith. Look at verse 8. But Elymas, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So now we're told that, okay, this man actually had another name. That this man, Bar-Jesus, his other name in Greek is Elymas, which, which literally means the magician. 
And we see that he's opposing them in a certain fashion. What is he doing? He's trying to turn the proconsul away from the faith. That gives us the idea that the proconsul was actually having leanings towards listening to them and believing what they were saying. And no doubt what happens at this point is this man, Bar-Jesus, recognizes, oh man, I'm in trouble. Because this guy has influence and power. Not only that, this guy has given me an opportunity and, and now, if, if he believes what they're saying, I'm going to be cast out. And in fact, it could have been worse. He, he could have ordered him to be executed. Why? Because if you were lying and you weren't actually doing what you were professing to do, they didn't look favorably upon that. Or the whole crowd could have burned him alive for exactly the same reason. And so he recognizes how important it is. But what he doesn't recognize is that he is actually coming up against a real prophet of the Lord and, and he cannot stand toe-to-toe with him. Look at verses 9 to 11. As we clearly see that, that Paul was willing to defend the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul. Okay, remember, this doesn't mean that his name was changed from Saul to Paul. He's had two names the entire time. Just as John Mark, who we think of as Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, he had two names, John and Mark. Lots of times they'd have a Hebrew name, and then they would also have a Roman or a... Or a Greek name. And this is the same case as Paul. And from this point on, Saul is no longer called Saul. He's always going to be referred to as Paul throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Why? Because he is now reaching the Gentiles. And it doesn't make sense for him to go forward with his Hebrew Jewish name. The only time that we will see Saul mentioned again is when Paul gives his own testimony later on in the book of Acts, referring back to the road to Damascus and and when he was saved. And then he refers himself as Paul. But look at what it says about him. Filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Obviously, we see that Saul was not happy with this man. Paul was not happy with him. Why? Because he is in direct opposition to the Lord. And he recognizes what he needs to do is he needs to stop this man in his tracks. And so that is exactly what he does. And yet notice where all this power comes from. I believe in the words that he says. Definitely when it comes to the pronouncement that he makes upon him. That's not Paul. Hey, None of us have the power to make somebody blind even for a little bit of time. And and Paul didn't have this power. This was the Holy Spirit. And we see that. But look look at what he says about this man. He, He makes three statements about him. First, he says that you are full of deceit. That means to be treacherous, to be to be cunning. And it's and it's a it's a word that has a word picture attached to it. It's it's the the word picture is is that of making a trap. That that's what this man was doing. That's what this man, Elemis, was doing as a magician. He was making a trap that people would fall into that was Satan's trap to deceive them and take them away from the Savior. He was doing the complete opposite of what his name said. And that is his point. 
Not only that, but that he's a man, instead of full of the spirit, he's full of this trickery and treachery. He's also full of fraud. That is the idea that he was gaining money from the practice that he was doing by tricking people. And then finally, as if that isn't strong enough, what, what does Paul say? He says, you are the son of the devil. Look, you think and you're telling everybody that you're this, but really you're the complete opposite and you are the son of the devil. And why don't you stop making the straight ways of the Lord crooked? And then we see that the judgment of the Lord is is dealt upon him. As darkness comes upon him, no doubt depicting where his spiritual heart is at. That his spiritual heart was dark. And now that's exactly what happens to him. But notice God's grace and mercy even in this. Why? Because he is not permanently blinded. He's only blinded for a time. And I wonder if, if as this happens, that Saul then, or Paul remind, remembers back to when he was on the road to Damascus. And he was blinded for a time. And the Lord used that in his life for good. And so perhaps Paul was thinking the same thing. Hey, maybe this will cause him to repent. And yet church history would say that no, he doesn't repent. And that he continues to be in opposition to the Lord. But look at verse 12 and we will close with this. As we see how the glorious gospel succeeds in the face of opposition like this. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. What is the final aspect, the final key that we see in these men's lives as being such good soldiers for the Lord? That is that they were waiting on the Lord for the results. Did they know that this is how the story was going to end? No. They recognized that the power is in the gospel, the power is not in them. And the Lord makes that clear to, to you and I this morning by revealing to us. Look at what He is amazed at. He's not amazed at the miracle. That's what I would have been amazed at. No, no. He is, being an intelligent man, He is amazed at the teaching about Christ. He is amazed at the Gospel. Are you amazed at the Gospel? How do you, how do I, how do we wait on the Lord for the results. How do we do that in a practical sense? We do that by seeing the power is in the gospel, not in us. Not in how, how good you are at your delivery. Not, not, not in how witty you are in responding to questions. Not, not in your argumentation. But it is in what it is in the gospel. And the gospel is the power unto salvation. And we see that oh so clearly here. And it's such an encouragement to know that all they had to do was wait upon the Lord and see how the gospel was going to be responded to because of what the Lord was doing in this man's heart and in this man's life. And, and isn't it interesting, the irony, that, that the one man, Elemis, this, this magician, his story ends that, that he is in darkness just like his spiritual heart. Whereas the other man, 
This, this governor of the island, he ends nothing like he started. He was in spiritual darkness, but now the Lord has come because of the gospel and given him spiritual light. And is that not what we all have to rejoice in today? I believe that these two kinds of people represented here are, are given to us as examples for us to, to recognize, to rejoice in those who receive the gospel, but also to recognize that there are times when, when we will need to, to stand up and defend the faith for those that are standing in complete opposition to the truth of the gospel. That there are some points to ponder that you'll see in, in, in your notes, and I would encourage you um, throughout the week that you go back over Acts chapter 13, 1 to 12. And you spend some time looking over the, the points to ponder, asking the Lord to redirect your heart towards His gospel and to consider the idea of praying and fasting. But let me close our time this morning before we sing our last song together. Our God that's mighty to save, that points again to the gospel and how much we have to rejoice that He is mighty to save. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for, for Your Word. We thank You that we know that in the end, You are victorious. That Satan will continue to raise his ugly head, his hand against You. That he will stand in opposition time and time again for as long as he can. But in the end, that You will win, that You will overcome. So we pray, Lord, that you would allow us to be amazed with your gospel as we leave here today, this morning. And that we would go from here rejoicing in the goodness that we have because of what you have done on our behalf, Lord Jesus. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.com. Org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org Have a great day in the Lord and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.